not really, of course, but you get my drift. I mean, you don't cross a guy like Kurt Schrader. If he wants to kidnap a teacher's Cabbage Patch doll, you just let him. Because otherwise, you'll end up eating your lunch all by yourself out by the flagpole like Kara Cow, or run the risk of having tater tots hurled at your head or whatever. The thing is, though, Mrs. Mulvaney loves that stupid doll. I mean, every year on the first day of school, she dresses it up in this stupid Clayton Hyde cheerleader outfit she had made at Sofro Fabrics. And on Halloween, she puts Betty Ann in this little witch suit with a pointed hat and a tiny broom and everything. Then at Christmas, she dresses Betty Ann like an elf. There's an Easter outfit, too, though Mrs. Mulvaney doesn't call it that because of the whole separation of church and state thing. Mrs. Mulvaney just calls it Betty Ann's spring dress. But it totally comes with this little flowered bonnet and a basket filled with real robin's eggs that somebody gave her a long time ago probably back in the 80s, which was when some ancient graduating class presented Mrs. Mulvaney with Betty Ann in the first place, on account of them feeling sorry for Mrs. Mulvaney, since she's a really, really good teacher, but she's never been able to have any kids of her own. Or so the story goes. I don't know if it's true or not. Well, except for the part about Mrs. M being a good teacher, because she totally is, and the part about her not having any kids of her own. But the rest of it? I don't know. What I do know is, here it is, almost the last month of my junior year, Betty Ann had been wearing her summer outfit, a pair of overalls with a straw hat like Huck Finn, and she disappeared, and I was sitting around worrying about her. A doll. A stupid doll. You don't think they're going to do anything to her, do you? I asked Trina later that same day during show choir. Trina worries that I don't have enough extracurriculars on my transcript, since all I like to do is read. So she suggested I take show choir with her. Except that it turns out that Trina slightly misrepresented what show choir is all about. Instead of just a fun extracurricular, it's turned out to be this huge deal. I had to audition and everything. I'm not the world's best singer or anything, but they really needed altos, and since I guess I'm an alto, I got in. Altos mostly just go la, la, la on the same note while the sopranos sing all these scales and words and stuff. So it's cool because basically I can just sit there and go la, la, la on the same note and read a book since Karen Sue Walters, the soprano who sits on the riser in front of me, has totally huge hair. And Mr. Hall, the director of the Troubadours. That's right. Our school choir even has its own name. Can't see what I'm doing. Mr. Hall does make all the girls wear padded bras under our blouses for uniformity of appearance while we perform, which is kind of bogus, but whatever. It looks good on your transcript, being in show choir, not the bras. The thing I'm not sure I'll ever forgive Trina for is the dancing. Seriously, we have to dance as we sing. Well, not dance really, but like move our arms, and I'm not the world's best arm mover. I have no sense of rhythm whatsoever. Something Mr. Hall feels compelled to point out about three times a day. What if they cut off her ear? I whispered to Trina. I had to whisper because Mr. Hall was working with the tenors a few risers away. We are preparing for this very big statewide show choir competition. Bishop Lures, it's called. And Mr. Hall's been way tense about it. Like he's been yelling at me about my arm movements four or even five times a day instead of just the normal three. And they send it to Mrs. M with a ransom note? They won't do anything like that, will they, do you think? 
I mean, that's destruction of personal property. Oh, my God, Trina said. She's a first soprano and sits next to Karen Sue Walters. First sopranos, I've noticed, are kind of bossy. But I guess it's sort of understandable, since they also have to do all the work, you know, hitting those high notes. Would you get a grip? It's just a prank, okay? The seniors pull one every year. Who's with you anyway? You weren't this upset over the stupid goat. Last year's graduating class's prank was putting a goat on the roof of the gym. I don't even know what's supposed to be funny about this. I mean, the goat could have been seriously injured. It's just... I couldn't get the picture of Betty Ann's yarn hair getting caught in that zipper out of my head. It just seems so wrong. Mrs. Mulvaney really loves that doll. Whatever, Trina said. It's just a doll. Except to Mrs. Mulvaney, Betty Ann is more than just a doll. I'm pretty sure. Anyway, the whole thing was bugging me so much that after school, when I got to the offices of the register, that's the school paper where I work most days, not to build up my extracurriculars, but because I actually kind of like it. I blurted out at the staff meeting that somebody ought to do a story on it. The kidnapping of Betty Ann Mulvaney, I mean. A story, Jerry Lynn Packard said, on a doll. Jerry Lynn jiggled her can of Diet Coke as she spoke. Jerry Lynn likes her Diet Coke flat, so she jiggles the can until it gets that way before she drinks from it. I personally find a taste for flat soda a little weird, but that isn't actually the weirdest thing about Jerry Lynn. The weirdest thing about Jerry Lynn, if you ask me anyway, is that every time she and Scott Bennett, the paper's editor, make out in her parents' basement rec room, Jerry draws a little heart in her date book to mark the occasion. I know this because she showed it to me once. Her date book, I mean. There was a heart on, like, every single page. Which is kind of funny. I mean that Jerry and Scott are even a couple. Because I, and pretty much everybody else on the register staff, expected Jerry Lynn to be appointed this year's editor-in-chief. Including, I suspect, Jerry Lynn herself. I mean, Scott didn't even move to Clayton until this past summer. Well, that's not quite true. He actually used to live here. We were even in the same fifth grade class. Not that we ever spoke to each other or anything. I mean, you don't talk to members of the opposite sex in the fifth grade. And Scott was never all that talkative to begin with. But he and I used to check out all the same uncool books from the school library. You know, not the popular books like biographies about Michael Jordan or Little House on the Prairie or whatever, but sci-fi fantasy books like The Andromeda Strain or The Martian Chronicles or Fantastic Voyage. Books the school librarian would frown at while we were checking them out, then go, Are you sure this is the kind of book you want, dear? Because they weren't exactly on a reading level or whatever. Not that we ever discussed them with each other or anything. The books Scott and I were reading, I mean. I only know he read the same books as I did because whenever I went to check one of them out, Scott's signature was there, right above mine, on the book's checkout card. Then Scott's parents split up. He moved away with his mom, and I didn't see him again until last summer, when the register staff was forced to go to this school-sponsored retreat with our advisor, Mr. Shea, who made us play these trust games so that we could learn to work together as a team. I was just standing there in the parking lot, waiting to board the bus to the retreat, when this car pulled up. And guess who got out of it? Yeah, that'd be Scott Bennett. Turned out he decided to give living with his dad a try for a while. And he'd sent in some clippings from his old school's paper. And Mr. Shea had led him on the staff of the register. 
And even though it was a little bit like Scott's head had been transplanted onto the body of one of Mrs. Mulvaney's Greek god statues or something, because he was like three feet taller and had turned totally buff since he was, you know, ten, I could tell he was still the same Scott, because he had a copy of Dreamcatcher sticking out of his backpack, which I, of course, had been meaning to read. By the end of the retreat, Mr. Shea had asked Scott to be editor, because he showed such strong leadership abilities and had also written this totally awesome essay during a free writing session about being the only guy in this cooking class he'd been forced to take after he'd gotten into some trouble in Milwaukee, where he'd lived with his mom. I guess Scott had been a little bit of a delinquent there or something, acting out and stuff, and the authorities had put him in this new experimental program for kids at risk. They'd given him a choice, auto shop or cooking class. Scott had been the only guy in the history of the program to choose the cooking class. Anyway, in the essay, Scott wrote about how, on the first day of class, the cooking teacher had produced a butternut squash and been all, we're going to make this into soup. And Scott had thought she was yet another huge phony liar, like all the other adults he knew. And then they ended up making butternut squash soup, and it changed Scott's life. He never got in trouble again. The only problem was, he said, he couldn't seem to stop wanting to cook stuff. Of course, Scott's essay, good as it was, might not have won him the post of editor-in-chief if Jerry Lynn had been at the retreat to remind Mr. Shea, as she undoubtedly would have, Jerry not being shy, that appointing Scott to such an important post wasn't fair, since Jerry's a senior and has paid her dues, whereas Scott's still only a junior and new to Clayton High and all. But Jerry had chosen to spend her summer at broadcast journalism camp out in California. Yes, it turns out there is such a thing. And Jerry Lynn is already so good at schmoozing like Mary Hart on Entertainment Tonight that she even got a scholarship to go there.